This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. My guest, Karen Fine, loves animals. But she finds that when cats and dogs who've encountered her before detect her smell, many will leave the room. She's been told that some cats run and hide when they hear her voice on the phone answering machine. Fine is a veterinarian. She's practiced for more than 30 years, most of that time making house calls. In a new memoir, Fine reflects on her experience treating pets and counseling their owners and using acupuncture and other non-traditional treatments to help her patients. She's written a veterinary textbook about narrative medicine, a field that seeks to improve care by viewing patients in the larger context of their life stories. Her book also deals with the emotional toll the profession takes on veterinarians, who suffer from suicide rates far higher than those of the general population. Karen Fine practices small animal medicine in central Massachusetts, where she lives with her husband and son and an assortment of rescues. Her new book is The Other Family Doctor. A veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. Karen Fine, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. You know, you begin this book with a lovely story about a couple you know who had adopted a feral cat not the easiest animals to approach. And they call you because he appears to have an infected front paw. Tell us what happens when you get there. So this was a very difficult cat. He wasn't aggressive or anything. He was just feral. And I had caught him before in a fishing net, which is something that another veterinarian who treated a lot of cats had shown me how to do. And when I, I got him wrapped up in the net and I moved him out into the kitchen where the light was better and I could tell what was wrong, he had a front toenail that had grown so long it had grown around into his paw pad and had punctured it and it was infected. And I knew that I could give him antibiotics for the infection, but it wasn't going to stop until I trimmed that claw. And I knew if I got him out of the net, he would run away. And I didn't know what I was going to do because I didn't have any anesthetics with me. And as I was wondering what to do, this cat stretched his leg out straight through the netting, somehow managed to do that, and spread his toes and stayed perfectly still as I trimmed his nail. And then I was able to let him go and give the people some antibiotics to put in his food. And it was just an amazing encounter. Yeah. So this animal who was panicked at in this net at some point realized, uh, this woman is here to help me and I know what the problem is. Here, take a look. What lessons did you draw from that, the cat's behavior? I think there's so much we don't know and understand about animals. And I think there's a lot that we sort of assume that we know, um, but that they they really have skills and senses that we don't or that we don't utilize to the to the best extent, but certainly say their their sense of smell is is much better than ours. And I think there's a lot we can learn from them, and I feel that I learn from my patients all the time. Right. And a lot of that knowledge is in the book. Um, you have to be careful with a cat or a dog that doesn't know you. Um, what are some tricks that you've developed for making it so that you don't get bitten or scratched? Well, I, I really listen to my sixth sense, and 
I found that when I don't listen, when I'm in a hurry, that's when I'm more likely to get injured. And sometimes it's a a person, say, with a dog, and they say, oh, I really don't want my dog to be muzzled. And that's fine. I understand that. And sometimes I'm able to to do that. But there are some times where, oh, if I can just put that muzzle on for a couple minutes, I can get everything done. And really, most dogs don't stress that much over something like that. And it saves me the worry and the anxiety about, am I going to get injured on my job? So it really depends. I really, especially being in the home, I think a lot of animals are much more relaxed. So I probably didn't have to do that as much. And I certainly always wanted the animal to be relaxed. And in fact, if an animal was better with a muzzle on, I would encourage the person to get their own muzzle get the animal used to it. And I once saw a dog that they had come into the clinic and the woman said this was a rescue dog that was very difficult. And she had worked with the dog a lot and she pulled her own muzzle out of her pocketbook and the dog's tail started wagging. And I was so impressed with that, that this dog had clearly realized that good things happen when the muzzle came out and it was not something he was afraid of at all. Now, cats are tricky. I mean, a lot of times when they're in carriers, they don't like that. Uh, They feel confined, whatever. And then you plop them up on this examining table. Um, What what do you look at to see whether you can pick that cat up or what you should do? Cats are difficult. And certainly doing house calls, one of the things I ask people to do is to put the cat in the bathroom because the, the hard part was chasing a cat out from behind a sofa or under a bed. The poor things would be so stressed, and it was just stressful for everybody. And then by the time I'm looking at them, their heart's racing. You know, they're, they were kind of in fight-or-flight mode, and it's, uh, it just made it difficult. So some cats were totally fine. Some cats, people could go pick them up wherever they were and just bring them to me. And some cats, you know, as soon as there's a noise at the door, they're under the bed. So especially those cats, I said, please, can you put them in the bathroom? At least then we know where they are. You decided to, I I guess you kept a part-time clinical practice and opened your own business uh, of making house calls and did this for 25 years. Um, Why did you do it? I always had the idea in the back of my mind because of my grandfather. So my grandfather was a physician, and part of his practice involved doing house calls. And he also had an office where patients would come to see him. But when he saw patients, he also knew them, even if they were in the office, he had been to their home. So he knew them very well, and that really informed his treatment plan. When he died, the family decided that I would inherit his doctor bag, which even came with some instruments, some forceps and hemostats, and I kept it as a treasured possession. And I always had this thought that it would be just a lovely way to practice and to kind of have his his lifestyle. So I thought, you know, I'll try it for a year and I'll see how it how it goes. And I just really loved it. I loved going into people's houses and sitting at their kitchen tables and seeing sort of where their animals ate and things like that. I would say, you know, okay, what are you feeding them? And at the clinic, people don't remember the name of the food. You can't tell how much. And at home, someone might say, oh, he only gets a little bit, and I can look across the kitchen and see three overflowing food bowls, so I know that there may be 
a little bit of denial going on, or maybe there's multiple people feeding the animal, or, you know, we can kind of suss out, okay, why are there three overflowing food bowls if you think that, you know, you're really tightly restricting how much food this animal gets. So you really get useful information from just seeing where they live and how people in the home interact with yes, them, Yes, right? very much, yeah. You know, you're right that when you were at a clinic, you hated when... when um, when pet owners would drop a pet off and just leave, the, the drop-offs could be – why? You, you, want, you wanted to say ask them questions, right? Uh, that- I wanted to ask them questions, and it's sort of getting a story, especially because my patients can't talk. I need to get that history from their caretaker, from their human. And getting something over the phone, unless I know the person well – if I know the person well, that's a different story. But if I don't know them well – then the, over the phone, you're missing all of those nonverbal cues. And also, I like to see them in the room with the animal and just seeing that connection. And for instance, vomiting with, say, a cat, there can be almost any cause. It could be something mild. It could be something major. And how much, how far do they want to go in terms of testing? And how long has it been going on for? And sometimes, just like with people, it's hard for people to think back, well, when did it start? It's hard to get a good history. So those nonverbal cues, I find, really help. Right, right. There's a lot to talk about once you get going. You're right that sometimes when, when an owner drops a pet off, you'll get a note that says, vomiting and ADR, capital ADR. What does the ADR mean? Yes, I love ADR. So ADR stands for Ain't Doing Right. And that is something that was said in the days of James Harriet, who wrote in Yorkshire, England. His, his real name was Alf White. So he was that veterinarian. And now they have the, the show All Creatures Great and Small, which is based on his uh-huh. book. So ADR just means ain't doing right. Can't put my finger on it. They're not themselves. Right. <laughs> it's easier to figure that out if they're there to, to walk you through what, you know, yes. what their habits are like and where they poop and where they don't and all of that. Um, yes, you know, exactly. You, you advise cat owners if t- when you're about to come to corral the cat and just get it into the bathroom because at least it's confined. You also noted that sitting on the toilet seat can help, right? Yes, yes. And this one, I kind of wished I'd discovered this sooner, but I, this one cat, I was chasing around and around this very nice large bathroom. And the cat was very nice, but just wouldn't allow me to get within a couple of feet of her. And I'm sort of going around and around. And after about 10, 15 minutes of this, I'm thinking, okay, this I'm really not getting any closer to this cat. The owner can't pick her up. So what am I going to do? And then I went and I sat down on the toilet seat and she came right up to me and let me pat her. And I patted her for a couple of minutes and then I picked her up and I was able to examine her and she was perfectly fine. So some cats, you just you just can't get that close to them. And I thought, oh, well, of course, she's used to her owner coming in and sitting on the toilet and patting her and talking to her. That happens every day. So of course, that's normal for her. (laughs) Right. Right. The the humans are fine when they're on that chair. Things are going to be okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. No one's ever come after me from sitting on the toilet. So You um, write that you got interested in alternative treatments such as acupuncture, um, what what role does it play in treating cats and dogs and other animals? Yeah, I use acupuncture quite a bit. And I find that it works well for a lot of chronic conditions where Western veterinary medicine 
maybe either can't really address well or can address with medications that have other side effects. And in some cases, acupuncture just works better, like often for arthritis. That's one of the main things that that I use it for. And I, I really enjoy using it. I feel like it's another way to look at the patient. When I learned traditional Chinese veterinary medicine, I, I realized it's a whole other system of medicine. And it's just fascinating to me to be able to kind of think Western medicine terms and then to kind of flip over and think Chinese medicine terms and how they're similar and how a patient can fit into, you know, if it fits into both systems in a cer- certain way, then I can feel like, okay, I, I really think that this treatment plan is going to be effective. So it's something that I've, I've really enjoyed. Right. I mean, it, part of it is acupuncture. It also involves the use of different nutrients, I guess, herbs that are, that, that are added Her- in some Herbs cases. and supplements. Yeah. yeah. I use some Chinese herbal formulas and supplements. And the, the theory is pretty much there's not a... There's not a magic bullet that we're looking for. We're not saying, you know, this, this take the supplement, it's going to fix everything. It's sort of a um, holistic approach looking at everything in the animal's life. And let's look at lifestyle and let's look at diet and those types of things. So sometimes I'll use Chinese medicine and Western medicine together with the same goal. And sometimes I'll be able to use less Western medication or no Western medication because of the Chinese medicine, because of the acupuncture. You, you tell a fascinating story about your own cat uh, named Daiquiri, um, who you'd had for a long time, and you say he was acting strangely, and you say he may have had a headache, which a lot of people don't realize animals do get. How, how, how did you know? Well, when we realized, so the first thing he did was he attacked my dog, which was incredibly out of character. He was a very gentle cat, and he was 15 at the time. And when my husband and I talked about it afterwards, we realized we had seen him what we call head pressing. So he had sort of put his head down and pressed his head into her body before he attacked her. And she may have just moved away or something like that. And animals we assume can get headaches. Headaches are so universal among people that we would think, you know, why wouldn't animals have headaches? And they're not going to kind of put their paw on their their head or something like that. What they're going to do is they're going to isolate themselves. They're going to close their eyes. They're going to go to a quiet, dark place. So when people say my animal's hiding, sometimes we think, okay, well, they're well, they're not feeling well, but it may be a headache. But in his case, he ended up having a brain tumor. And that was something I had learned in school, but not really, see, it's not a very common symptom, this, this head pressing. But I think that's what he was doing. And that's why he attacked my dog. So then I took him for an MRI and he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Right, you saw the the brain tumor, and then you you got in touch with a Canadian vet, Stephen uh, Marsden, right? Who spe- Steve Marsden, yeah, yeah, who specialized in a lot of these non traditional treatments, and this was just fascinating. Give us, tell us a bit about about his exam, what he concluded, what how he treated Daiquiri. So Steve Marsden was teaching a class at Tufts, and it was one of these wonderful timing situations that just worked out. My cat had just had his MRI, just had the diagnosis. 
Steve Marsden was there teaching, and I said, would you do an exam on my cat who just had this diagnosis? And Steve ended up coming to my house because he wanted to see my cat in his own environment. And he felt his pulse and looked at his tongue and did a a Chinese medicine exam. And he said he's suffering from excessive dampness, which is something that's a Chinese medicine construct. It's not something that makes any sense in Western medicine, but it's a fairly common diagnosis in Chinese medicine. And he recommended some Chinese herbs and a diet change. And at this point, I felt I had nothing to lose. My, my next option was euthanasia. My cat had been very stressed going into the hospital, and I wasn't going to have him have radiation treatments for that reason. So I changed his diet, gave him the herbs, and three weeks later, he was normal kitty. And he lived for another year until he was 16. And I I would have liked to have repeated the MRI, but it was very expensive, not to mention putting my cat through that. But it just amazed me the effect that the Chinese medicine had. Right. You write that dampness meant that the cat was not adequately processing his food, so the byproducts were accumulating in the body and becoming toxic. And this was treated with these dietary changes. Wow. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and it, it worked so well for him. And it's sort of a, it's a, it's a metaphorical, Chinese medicine is a metaphorical thing, so it's not like you can, say, test for these toxins. It's just from looking at him and his symptoms and his signs, his pulse, his tongue, all these other things that we can tell that this is what's going on with him. It's a pattern. You know, one of the things you mentioned is that you know, some some diagnostic tools and treatments are expensive, like MRIs. And I'm wondering, um, you know, what do you do when the, the diagnostic tool or treatment is expensive and the owner says they can't afford it or just aren't prepared to spend thousands of dollars on, on an animal? That is one of the main curses of veterinary practice and pet ownership, really. It's very difficult. And I myself have been in situations, as of most of my clients, where you're trying to consider, you know, do I have this money? Is it worth spending? And and there's so many factors. One is, you know, whether you have it or not, but also how old is the animal? Is it likely to give them, you know, a short amount of quality time, a long amount of quality time? If you have an animal with a broken leg, say that cat that had an amputation, now that cat's likely to live a normal lifespan and cats do fine with three legs. So that's a very fixable problem. If someone doesn't have the money for that, then a lot of times you're looking at euthanasia. And that is one of the reasons I think why veterinary practice is so stressful is that, you know, even though we may want to, you know, if it's our clinic, maybe do things for less cost or whatever, our bills are very expensive and our our debts are expensive. The student loan is incredible, and you know we have to pay bills. And there's almost an expectation, I think, among some clients that we should be doing things for free. And these services, even say the blood work, the costs have gone up a lot. They cost it costs us money. So there's there's very little that's really free, and it's it's a very difficult thing. Yeah, is pet insurance an answer for this? I think pet insurance could be an answer for this, and I I think it's becoming more popular, and I think that's a very good thing. 
I, it's also a bit of a concern among the industry that it'll become like human medicine where we have to kind of input codes and then all the prices will go up because we'll have to hire people to deal with insurance companies and it'll become, you know, we don't want it to become like human medicine. Right now, yeah, I think it would really help. And sometimes you see something like, say, a, a young dog that eats, gets into something and eats something and now needs a expensive foreign body surgery at a referral hospital. And that's going to cost thousands of dollars. And that's just a difficult situation. Whereas if you have the insurance, you can feel like, okay, if something like that crops up, I can, I can deal with it. Let me reintroduce you again. We're going to take a break here. We are speaking with Karen Fine. She's a veterinarian in central Massachusetts. Her new book is The Other Family Doctor. A veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. She'll be back to talk more after a short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. Our guest is veterinarian Karen Fine. She spent more than 30 years treating animals, often making house calls. In a new book, she shares some of what she's learned about animals, their owners, and new developments in her profession, including the use of acupuncture and other non-traditional treatments, and the field of narrative medicine, which views patients in the larger context of their life stories. Her new book is The Other Family Doctor. A veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. Um, death is a subject that, that occupies a good good bit in, in your practice and your experience. Animals don't live as long as we do. Um, your cat, Dacry, had gotten great treatment from a, a physician practicing holistic medicine, but eventually, you know, he was older and I guess at age 16 was in liver failure. Um, and you felt that it was interesting because at this point, you know, the holistic treatments weren't, weren't giving the results and the, the time was coming. You said you felt you, that you could tell he knew he was dying and accepting it. Um, share us, how did you know that? Share that with us. Well, he retreated to, we had a little half bathroom upstairs, which had no windows, and he retreated there, but unlike when he was sick before and I felt that he was having headaches, he seemed comfortable. He was lying there. He was purring. He had stopped eating, which for him was this was a cat who would eat the house. So the fact that he stopped eating, that's when I really knew that something was something was wrong. And he just was so calm and serene. And I really felt that he was ready. And I've felt that from many animals when I see animals that are near death, that I feel like I see this recognition in them, that there's this process going on. And it made me really think, you know, that they're, they're having this mind-body connection and that their body's breaking down and their mind is accepting that. And that's what they're experiencing. Sort of like if you think of an animal giving birth, no one's explained to them, you're, you're pregnant and you're going to have puppies and this is what's going to happen. They listen to their body and they, they kind of intuit what to do. And I think death is a similar situation for animals. And that is, that is my opinion after watching so many animals die and be near death. When the time came, um, you decided he should be euthanized, right? And you chose not to do this yourself, I guess. I mean, you'd, you'd done hundreds of them by this point, I assume. 
Yes, I had. But, and some veterinarians want to be the one to euthanize their own animals. And I did not. I wanted to be focusing on my relationship with him and not whether the needle was going into the vein and not the logistics. I wanted to be really fully present with him. And I thought he might go on his own, and he would have. He was, he was probably a day or two away from dying on his own. But by that point, I felt, okay, I think he's not comfortable. And knowing where this is going, I don't want him to be further uncomfortable. So that's where I made a decision. When you euthanize a pet, um, tell us just a bit about how you do it to, um, you know, how you manage it so that the, 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 the animal is treated humanely and, and the, the client, the owner, uh, is, is supported. Um, what are some of the techniques you use? That's very important to me. And one of the things I do is I, I often ask the person, have you seen this done before? I'm trying to gauge their comfort level with it. And some people say, oh, yeah, and they kind of know what to expect. Some people say no, um, and then I kind of walk them through it a little bit that I'll often give a tranquilizer injection first, and then the other injection goes right into the vein that it's usually, um, it's a painless injection, but sometimes they don't like the, the needle or their leg being held or whatever. Um, and it really depends on the person. It's a whole different thing when their their person isn't there, then it's just me giving an injection and the person holding, usually there's a staff member holding them and we are very much aware that this is not like any other injection. We're very much aware this is a euthanasia and there's sort of a respectful silence. Um, it's, a, it's a strange situation to be euthanizing your patients, I have to say, even after all these years. It's... Um, it's a, str it's a strange thing. And I feel like I have a lot of respect for that. And I, I try, I want people to feel supported. And I know that even though this injection may bring this animal so much peace, if they're suffering, it may bring the person in the room with me or the people much pain and anguish. So it's a, it's really sort of the delicate dance in terms of supporting the person. I certainly want to make sure that the animal is comfortable, but we really try hard, um, myself and staff that I, that I work with, we really try hard for it to be a good experience, certainly for the animal, but also for any people that are watching. You know, Karen Fine, before I even read your book, I knew one question I wanted to ask you was, People get into veterinary practice, I think, because they love animals, um, and and we all do. Uh, and and I think for those of us not in the business, we think it must just be so heartbreaking to watch animals suffer. They are just these innocent creatures, and being a vet means that you see a lot of that suffering. Um, and you're with pet owners when they're saying goodbye, when a, when euthanasia occurs, and I'm sure you feel that pain. Yes. So, so when you comfort someone uh, in that moment of terrible pain and you absorb some of that emotional pain, what do you do for yourself? Yeah, that's hard. And that's sometimes I, I think about it more now. Sometimes I write. Sometimes I talk to people. I had talked to a therapist at one point, which really helped. And I thought, you know, this, this, is, this is something big. Because I think for a long time, I just thought, 
you know, no, it, it doesn't affect me. I'm fine. It's it's hard, but I do hard things, and I'm I'm I can do it. And it's not something you know. I sort of was very stoic about it, and now I think I'm realizing how important it is that I think we need to talk about it. I think both as as a profession, and I think people also need to address it. And really, the reason I wrote the book is I see so much human suffering. And I've said, I've seen so many times where people are so upset and I've had people say to me, I'm so glad you helped me through this, or I don't even know what I would have done if you hadn't helped me. And it just makes me think, well, what, what resources are there? This should, this, it's a difficult, painful situation, but it's so common. And I think people need to recognize how common it is and feel more supported so that it's not something that I think a lot of people feel terrible guilt afterwards. And I think that may also be related to the fact that we don't really talk about the importance of this bond and some of these relationships that we have and how we feel when when our animals die. One of the things you write is that when an animal dies and there are other pets at home, do you ever see the uh, pets grieving the loss of a fellow pet? Very much so. Yeah, they're they're very deeply affected. I think sometimes more than people because we often leave and go to work or go take a walk or socialize or whatever. Um, and our animals are, you know, often more confined to the house and they have less, they're not watching TV, they're not listening to podcasts. So they, they are more maybe in tune with their environment. And some, just like some people, some animals are, you know, kind of um, adjust more easily and some really really, you know, really have a difficult time with it. And then sometimes for the the person to kind of set up a new routine with them, try to get them maybe some enrichment to, to kind of take their mind off of their grief so that they're not, you know, they can get back to eating and kind of in, enjoying their life. But we, we often see animals grieving. Yeah. And, and what do you tell uh, owners to do to help them? To, to try to focus, keep them onto a, a schedule. And sometimes it's a new schedule. Sometimes it's keeping up a little bit with a with an old schedule. Maybe try to, if it's a dog, say, get them out of the house. If they don't have their playmate anymore, try to go to somewhere where they can see another dog um, so that they can, they can kind of keep doing a little bit of what they're doing and just, just allowing them that, that time and space to grieve. Because it, it is a normal, a normal process. Let me reintroduce you. We are speaking with Karen Fine. She's a small animal veterinarian in central Massachusetts. Her new memoir is called The Other Family Doctor. A veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. We'll talk more in a moment. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air, and we're speaking with Karen Fine. She is a veterinarian who spent more than 30 years treating animals much of that time making house calls. Her new memoir is called The Other Family Doctor. A veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. You have become interested in the field of narrative medicine and are integrating it into your practice. You want to explain what this is? Sure. And I found out about narrative medicine. I was doing some online research of writing the memoir. I was looking into what is self-disclosure, which means you sort of as a practitioner saying, well, this is what I do with my animal. And I stumbled across this article 
from 2001 in a medical journal about narrative medicine for people. And I thought, oh, that's so fascinating. It's looking at the person's story. And I, it's sort of like a light went on for me. And I thought, well, that's why I don't like animals being dropped off, because I want to know the story. I don't just want a history with lists of things checked off and things written in lines. I want to know the story. And when I understand the story, then I can understand not just what's going on, but how to help. And that might be different with different stories. Like, say there's an animal vomiting from the same cause, but different people may have, you know, there may be different things going on in the household that you can do to address it, depending upon the story. And it also kind of goes back to my grandfather's style of practice, where you really know who the people are. They're not just like a, a disease process in an exam room. It's not just the diabetes case in room two. It's who who is this person? And for my patients, who, who are their family? Because they have a caretaker. And the decisions are made by the caretaker. And what are their narrative? What is their narrative? And what do they understand about, say, medication or cause of disease? And that's the type of thing they're looking at with human narrative medicine, which I think is just really fascinating, and has a lot of a lot of potential to help veterinary medicine as well. I have to ask you a bit about the business of veterinary medicine. You've been doing this a long time, and I think you think people have a misimpression that. Vets make a lot of money. Um, give us, give us the real story. Oh, the real story is veterinarians do not make a lot of money. Most of us drive cars with over a hundred thousand miles on them, and the debt is just incredible. And I think that's one. That's theory with, you know, one reason why there's so few men going into the profession. If you're going to have that amount of debt, you want to have a profession where you're going to be able to have a kind of a hope of paying it back without living a, a very difficult lifestyle. You're talking about debt for, for, for training. Uh, for training, yes, school debt. Yes, school loans. And the other thing is, you know, people think, wow, it costs so much money to, to have my animal have surgery. Well, if they were a person, it would cost, you know, many times more than that. Yet we're using basically the same anesthesia, the same surgical instruments that need to get sterilized. It, you know, much of the care is very similar and you're getting it at a fraction of the cost. So veterinarians, are, and certainly veterinary staff, is paid very little. So that's why it's, um, it's, a, it's a difficult profession, and people get upset. People, people sometimes take out their frustrations on the veterinary clinic staff, and that can be a very difficult situation as well. You mentioned one small thing people can do is buy their medication from the vets as opposed to, you know, looking for a deal online. I do think that helps. And I think there's become a, a perception that, well, you should just get a, a prescription from your vet and it's cheaper online. And a lot of veterinary clinics have online suppliers and at least they can get that little bit. And that really does support the veterinary clinic. Even, even I think if it's corporately owned, it's going to be that, okay, this clinic is making more money. They can have another receptionist. Um, they can have more equipment, that kind of a thing. So I think buying your buying your flea and tick and heartworm preventative from your local vet clinic, I think, is, a, is one way to really support your local veterinarian and staff. We were talking about the emotional difficulty of seeing animals die and giving 
you know, owners very bad news about their pets and, and, and the stress and emotional toll it takes on veterinarians. Uh, you write in the book that veterinarians have high rates of suicide. This is confirmed? This is over time? Oh, it is. It is. Yeah, multiple studies have, have shown it to be true. And it's really a, an issue within the profession. And since it's really come out, there's been a big focus on wellness, that we should, veterinarians should try to take good care of ourselves and get enough sleep and eat right and exercise. And I, I kind of feel like that's very, it's a very good start, but we also need to try to focus on why this work is so difficult and how bonded people are to their animals and how intense some of these interactions are. And there's also a concern that the the focus on wellness kind of puts it back onto the practitioner that, well, if you're struggling, then you're not taking good enough care of yourself. <laughs> so we don't want, you don't want that to kind of be the, the thought either. So I think the profession is trying very hard, but still has some more, some more work to do, I think. And I, I think people too need to maybe understand how difficult this, this work can be. Well, I'm wondering how you change the profession so that it is less stressful and emotionally difficult. Yes, that's a that's an excellent question, and I think one thing is just to to realize that it's difficult because even for veterinarians and and say in school, veterinarians many of us are perfectionists, and you know if your animal just like a human physician, you think well if your patient dies is that a failure? So kind of really talking about some of these things and reflecting on them, and I I really feel that reflection and looking at some of our our work is important. And in human medicine, there's more of a, a history of that. Like certainly not every physician, you know, is necessarily reflective, but you have the medical humanities, which really looks at what does it mean to be a doctor? What does it mean to be sick? And we don't have that with veterinary medicine. We're just, just starting to have a couple people talking about veterinary humanities and that sort of thing, and about how we can reflect upon our work. Well, I wish you luck, Karen Fine. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Karen Fine is a veterinarian in central Massachusetts. Her new book is The Other Family Doctor. A veterinarian explores what animals can teach us about love, life, and mortality. Coming up, Ken Tucker reviews the new solo album from Caroline Polachek of the indie band Chairlift. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Director of Sustainability Mandy McKay shares one of the many ways their team is thinking about how sustainable brewing practices also help make operations more efficient. We earned platinum zero waste certification back in 2013, and that means... We're diverting 99.8% of our waste from the landfill, and most of that is through recycling, composting, um, or reuse. We own the only hot rot composting system in the entire country, and it's there to compost all of our food waste and some of our spent brewing materials on site. We turn it into compost, and then we use that compost on our estate garden, which grows food for the restaurant, and our hop and barley fields nearby. So we just took it upon ourselves to, to do that, do it ourselves and keep that organic material out of the landfill, turn it into something we can use and close that loop. Learn more by visiting SierraNevada.com.
Must be 21 or older. Please drink responsibly. Caroline Polacek has had a varied musical career that's included fronting the indie band Chairlift, co-writing a song recorded by Beyonce, and releasing music under a variety of pseudonyms. Polacek's new release, Desire I Want to Turn Into You, is her second solo album under her own name. Our rock critic Ken Tucker says its music is passionate, playful, and constantly varied. These days I wear my body like an uninvited guest. I turn it right and right and right instead of turning left. The boy of patience is a magic kind of medicine. Cause every spiral brings me back into your arms again. Said no regrets. That's Sunset, which features Spanish flamenco-style guitar by Mark Lopez. It's not typical of the rest of Caroline Polachek's album because, well, because there is no typical sound on this collection, Desire, I Want to Turn Into You. Its very eclecticism eventually becomes its signature style. The album includes a song Polachek released a couple of years ago that's never really gone away, surfacing again and again on social media. It's a snappy pop song about that elusive someone in everyone's life called Bunny is a Rider. Bunny is a rider, satellite can find her, no sympathy, ain't nothing for free. Bunny is a rider, satellite can find her, no sympathy, ain't nothing for free. Bunny is a rider, no sympathy. Bunny as a Rider is quick and concise. More often on this album, however, Polachek cooks up songs with layers of contrasting ingredients. Welcome to My Island, for example, starts off with a swirl of operatic melodrama before coming back to earth in a series of lines that cross hip-hop with a robotic staccato. Polachek is now more than 15 years into a very busy career, a decade as co-leader of the band Chairlift, plus multiple collaborations with various musicians such as Charlie XCX, Travis Scott, and Dua Lipa. A song she co-wrote, No Angel, appeared on Beyoncé's 2013 self-titled album. Like I indicated at the start, she's got range. Another example of that is this dip into singer-songwriter melancholy called Butterfly net. Earth went silent, London fell asleep. She dreamed of a winter 
Will you bitter me? Perfect timing as new battles in November. A tender creature, a fever, disarming fluorescent. There you I've sort of held Polachek's music at arm's length, appreciating its technical skill, but put off by some of its preciousness. But she's taken those skills to a different place on Desire I Want to Turn Into You. Many of the compositions here are fascinating puzzles in which a verse slips into a chorus that lifts her voice up, up and away into what amounts to a different melody. Listen to an example of this in the opening moments of Crude Drawing of an Angel. Draw the blinds, draw the back It's a matter of time Till you wake up and watch me Draw your brow with shaky hand So that after you're gone I got something to hold on Desire I Want to Turn Into You was recorded during a time when many people were emerging from pandemic isolation, and, intentionally or not, it taps into the upheaval and disorientation we've lived through. It's the work of someone who sounds as though she's bursting with things she's been holding back, wanting to find someone to share them with. It's music that sounds like relief, exhilaration, freedom. Ken Tucker reviewed Caroline Polachek's new album called Desire, I Want to Turn Into You. On tomorrow's show, we speak with veteran character actor Clancy Brown. He's been working since the 80s and has played some memorable villains over the years in movies, including Shawshank Redemption, Highlander, and coming out later this month, John Wick 4. But he may be best known as the voice of Mr. Krabs on the animated show SpongeBob SquarePants. I hope you can join us. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, Susan Yakundi, and Joel Wolfram. Teresa Madden directed today's show. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. Thank you.